Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The president holds a second closed-door meeting on the nation's $31 trillion debt ceiling. Are the key players close to hashing out a deal before the fast-approaching June 1st deadline? Who's to blame for recent bank collapses? Lawmakers confront the heads of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank on bank mismanagement and profitable stock sales. The House Judiciary Committee asking special counsel John Durham to testify on his report. We speak with a former federal prosecutor to get his reactions to the report. Congress could create a new agency dedicated to regulating AI. The CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, supported this idea at a congressional hearing today. Find out what's in the works. And a former Apple engineer is charged with stealing trade secrets and then flying them over to China. The DOJ renewing efforts to protect U.S. technology. In a little over two weeks, the nation faces a deadline to raise its $31 trillion debt ceiling to avoid the economic consequences of a default. At the White House this afternoon, the president met with congressional leaders to discuss how to move forward. NTD's Melina Wisecup is at the White House with more. Melina, following this second meeting, how are these discussions looking? Good evening. Well, both parties appeared optimistic when they spoke to us following today's meeting, saying that progress was made. As for where that progress lies, the two sides have a different outlook. Speaker McCarthy says that for him, the big change today was that they're able to narrow down who's sitting at that negotiation table. His take on it is that the two sides are still far apart, but a deal is in sight, whereas Senate Leader Chuck Schumer says the key for him was the common understanding that both sides will need to compromise to reach an agreement. It is possible to get a deal by the end of the week. It's not that difficult to get to an agreement. What has changed in this meeting is the president changed the scope of who's all negotiating. It was a much more cordial meeting. There were honest and real discussions about differences that we have on a whole variety of issues, but it was all respectful, and that was a good sign as well. This meeting today comes after both White House and congressional staffers have met several times to try to find that common ground. Although the White House has adamantly rejected characterizing these meetings as negotiations, as they want to be careful not to be uh, labeled as caving to GOP demands. We are right now having a conversation, negotiating on the budget. That's what the president has been very clear about. We want to go back to regular order and talk about appropriations. Now, as for specifics, what we're watching is where both parties stand on certain aspects like strengthening work requirements for social welfare recipients or rescinding unspent COVID money. I asked both sides about this following that meeting. McCarthy says he's confident that taking back that unspent COVID money will be included in the final bill, whereas Speaker, uh, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer says that he'd rather not talk specifics. Take a look. Yeah, we're not going to get into negotiations out here. We have to come to common ground. It's a no-brainer. I don't think anybody in America doesn't think if you had billions of dollars sitting out there that you appropriated two years ago, people could not spend. 
And as the clock is ticking for both sides to reach an agreement, some members in the House, House Republicans, have called on the Senate to cancel next week's recess so that they can quickly pass something should the two reach a should the two sides reach a deal soon. Biden recently expressed optimism that the two sides will come together and reach a deal to avoid a default. And Speaker McCarthy says he's prepared to continue these talks even as early as this evening. All right, great. Thank you so much, Melina. Great to hear that update. Now, meanwhile, President Biden will proceed with his plans to go to the G7 summit this week in Japan. But a source told NBC News the president will cut his Asia trip short amid the ongoing debt ceiling negotiations. And former heads of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were grilled by lawmakers today on bank failures in their own pay. NTD's Iris Tao has more on today's much-anticipated hearing in the Senate Banking Committee. Good evening, Steph. You're right. This is the first major public appearance by the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank after the bank's shocking failure in March, which was the second biggest bank collapse in U.S. history. But the CEO today, while taking responsibility for the failure himself, also went on to blame interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. The messaging from the Federal Reserve was that interest rates would remain low and that inflation that was starting to bubble up would only be transitory. As well as what he calls a social media-fueled bank run. Leading to $42 billion in deposits being withdrawn from SVB in 10 hours, or roughly $1 million every second. But senators are not really buying that argument. It sounds a lot like the dog ate my homework. Some senators noted that supervisors had already pointed out SVB's interest rate risks many times before its collapse, and that ire was bipartisan. But anyone that paid close attention to the economy over the past two years could have plainly seen that the Federal Reserve was going to continue to increase interest rates. And in addition to debating who's to blame for the bank's failures, lawmakers also criticized the SVB CEO for dishing out bonuses and selling stocks shortly before the bank's collapse. You were paying out bonuses until literally hours before regulators seized your assets. Senators say they're currently working on passing bipartisan legislation to try to claw back compensation from the executives of failed banks. Meanwhile, the White House, while it has not directly endorsed such a bill, has been calling on Congress to reform how bank CEOs are paid if their banks collapse. Reporting by Iris Tao, NTD News. And a stalled oil project is now being approved. On Monday, the Biden administration gave permission to the Mountain Valley Pipeline, a $6.6 billion project backed by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. The pipeline will straddle across the Commonwealth of Virginia, carrying gas through streams, wetlands and forests. Unlike many other Democrats, Manchin is known for his support of fossil fuels. The senator recently voiced concern over Biden's climate policy, which he refers to as a radical climate agenda. The Mountain Valley Pipeline is 94% completed, but it's been delayed for four years. The project's developers said that they aim to get the pipeline up and running later this year. And even with the approval from the current administration, more regulatory hurdles are expected. Manchin has said that he will keep up his advocacy until the last 20 miles of this pipeline is completed. And lawmakers on Capitol Hill are reacting to the Durham report released yesterday. 
Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee are now asking John Durham to testify. The Durham report concluded that the FBI rushed to open its investigation into Trump's 2016 campaign and had shoddy foundations for the probe. The House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan said he's reached out to the Justice Department to have special counsel John Durham testify. Jordan said the hearing would take place on May 25th. He's asked Durham to summarize his findings in a 10-minute opening statement and answer questions from committee members. Former President Trump reacted to the Durham report on Truth Social, saying, quote, Congress must do something about this, must never happen again. In a statement on Monday, the FBI acknowledged what it called missteps in its investigation into the Trump campaign and said that the agency had rolled out reforms in response. And to discuss Durham's report and these recent developments, earlier today I spoke with former federal prosecutor William Scharf. He's now running for Missouri Attorney General in the 2024 Republican primary. Let's see that discussion now. Will Scharf, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Always great to join you all. For sure. Now, John Durham's report. There are vastly different responses coming in. We have the New York Times saying it really didn't deliver on all the things that Trump said it would. Trump himself calling it, you know, saying that it shows that Americans have been scammed. You have said that this is the findings in the report really point to something that all Americans should be concerned about. It's really a bipartisan issue here. Could you explain more about that? Sure. I think the Durham report reveals uh, probably one of the greatest political scandals in American history, that the investigation into President Trump over so-called Russian collusion uh, was never properly predicated. It shows high-level uh, cooperation between the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, and people within the FBI who were leading the push to investigate Trump. And it shows a concerted effort by people within the FBI to keep the investigation going long after it was clear even to them that there was no basis for continued investigation into President Trump. It concerning on principle, regardless of you know who you vote for, really. Um, so observers on both sides of the aisle have pointed to Durham's failure to prosecute any high-level actors in this case as a sign that the report is toothless. Some critics calling it um, a sign of whitewashing. What do you think will come of this report and why? Uh, what I would hope would come of this report is a, a really a deep searching uh, attempt on the part of our intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies uh, to address what went wrong. Prosecuting things long after the fact is always difficult. And I think that's really at the heart of Durham's decision not to press for further prosecutions. But I think it's worth noting that uh, one of the convictions that Durham's investigators did secure, uh, a guy named Kleinsmith, he admitted uh, to effectively fabricating evidence that went into the, the Carter Page FISA application, which really was a crucial part of the investigation into the Trump campaign. The FBI has said that it's been working on the issues that have been identified in the report, that it's fixing them or it has fixed them, um, whereas some critics have said that it can't be fixed. You know, notably, presidential contender Vivek Ramaswamy is saying that he would shut the FBI down entirely because such a thing just can't be remedied. I think people need to be held accountable. And I think that real work needs to go on, particularly at the FBI, 
to ensure that this sort of politicized investigation never occurs again. If that's impossible, take things from there. If Durham is called in to testify for a hearing, what kinds of questions do you think they should put to him? I think the, the key questions to ask Durham at this point uh, are what remedies he thinks are possible to address the very real deficiencies in the process that he identified in his report, uh, to comment on how we can get the FBI back to being the agency that it's supposed to be, uh, and ensure that this kind of weaponized use of law enforcement against a political opponent never happens again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Will Scharf, great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Great to join you. Today is Primary Tuesday in Kentucky and Battleground State, Pennsylvania. But voters from both parties are at the polls choosing which candidates will be on the ballot for the November general election. NTD's Arlene Richards has more on that. Democrat and Republican voters in Kentucky and Pennsylvania headed to the polls on Tuesday to choose their nominees for state and local offices. The results of these primary elections will set the stage for the general elections in November. In Kentucky, Republican voters will decide once and for all who will take on incumbent Democrat Governor Andy Beshear in November. While there are about a dozen Republican candidates vying for the challenger seat, State Attorney General Daniel Cameron is considered to be a top contender. Cameron was endorsed by former President Trump. Hello, Kentucky. But Kelly Kraft, endorsed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, seems to be his toughest contender. She recently appeared on Fox News. Kentuckians are the ones that are voting. I'm on the ballot. Other state races in Kentucky include Secretary of State, Treasurer, Auditor, and Agriculture Commissioner, as well as county races for school boards, mayors, and other leaders. Over in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, voters in the overwhelmingly Democrat city of Philadelphia are effectively choosing their next mayor. Former city council members Sherelle Parker and Helen Jim, as well as former city controller Rebecca Reinhardt, are considered to be the favorites. If one of them wins, she will become the first woman elected mayor in Philadelphia's long history. Jim would also be the city's first Asian-American leader. Current Democrat Mayor Jim Kenney said last year at a press conference that he worries every day, referring to the problem of shootings in the city. So everything we have in the city uh, at, over the last seven years, I worry about. I don't enjoy Fourth of July. I don't enjoy the, the, the Democratic National Convention. I don't enjoy the, the uh, um, uh, NFL draft. I'm waiting for something bad to happen all the time. He said he would be happy when he's no longer the mayor. Another race to watch in Pennsylvania is for a seat on the state Supreme Court. Two Republicans and two Democrats are vying for the open seat, left vacant after the death of former Chief Justice Max Baer, a Democrat. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And now to technology news. Congress just held a hearing on how to regulate AI. One of the witnesses, the CEO of OpenAI himself, Sam Altman. And one of the key themes of the hearing, the creation of an all-new agency dedicated to AI. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. There was a major hearing today on Capitol Hill about how to regulate AI. The CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, was one of the key witnesses. He said he believes AI has more upsides than downsides, but that regulation is key. Regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. For example, 
the U.S. government might consider a combination of licensing and testing requirements. Senator Josh Hawley made a list of the problems AI could cause and is currently causing. The loss of jobs, invasion of privacy, personal privacy, on a scale we've never before seen, manipulation of personal behavior, manipulation of personal opinions, and potentially the degradation of free elections in America. Did I miss anything? I mean, this is, this is quite a list. A key theme during the hearing was the possibility of a special agency dedicated solely to AI, similar to how the SEC is dedicated to protecting investors and the FDA is dedicated to food and drugs. I'm interested in this talk about an agency. I've come to the conclusion that we absolutely have to have an agency. In the most effective way is have an agency. We may create a great U.S. agency, and I hope that we do. One of the witnesses, Professor Gary Marcus from New York University, even suggested that we might want an international agency for AI. And Altman agreed. To be effective, uh, we do need something global. The hearing also brought up the open letter from the Future of Life Institute. The letter called for a six-month pause on AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. Over 27,000 people have signed the letter, including Elon Musk. Altman, however, did not sign the letter. The frame of the letter is wrong. What matters is audits, red teaming, s safety standards that a model needs to pass before training. If we pause for six months, then I'm not really sure, sure what we do then. Do we pause for another six? Do we kind of come up with some rules then? The standards that we have developed and that we've used for GPT-4 deployment, uh, we want to build on those, but we think that's the right direction, uh, not a calendar clock pause. This was the first in a series of hearings dedicated to AI regulation. There are many more to come. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up, New York City indicates it could begin housing illegal immigrants on school property. NTD hears from parents and students who are concerned. And a former Apple engineer is charged with stealing trade secrets and then flying them over to China. The DOJ renewing efforts to protect U.S. technology. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said the city may begin housing illegal immigrants on public school property. This comes as the city struggles to manage the thousands of immigrants being bused to the city. NTD's Jason Perry reports. I'm here in New York City right outside of this gym, which is on public school property, and it could soon be home to illegal immigrants. Parents protested in this same area early on Tuesday. They were upset that it's so close to the school their children attend. So we talked to some of the parents and some students about how they feel about that situation. Gyms are for children. Gyms are for children. Look, it's going to be what it is. All the protesting, everything that's going on, it's falling on deaf ears, you know, that's, that's my opinion. As long as the kids are, what's going to happen? A, a, a child is going to get hurt, because we don't know who's coming in here from other countries, gang members, any, anybody. It takes away from her prom, her graduation, the <laughs> carnival. And at this point, it's not that we don't want them here, it just shouldn't be on school grounds. That's our main concern right now. And this is what the students had to say. Ms. Mazzullo, our principal, told us that we weren't going to be able to use the gym because of what's going on. Okay, yeah, they're not going to have prom and stuff, but think about the people in there. Like, 
You don't know how they're living because you aren't you you aren't from where they're from. Just knowing that I could I could take a little bit of what I have and give to them, that means a lot. Meanwhile, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said on PIX11 that the city has to bring the immigrants in and then find space. And now we want to be clear on that plan. We have 20 standalone gymnasiums throughout the city. They stand alone. They're not a, a part of the school building. They are on the list of potential locations that we may have to use. We're not there yet. Adam said on PIX11 that New York City received over 4,200 illegal immigrants in the last week, and they could receive 15 more busloads over the weekend. He said the city has to be prepared to manage the crisis. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. And the DOJ is launching several criminal cases tracing the illegal flow of technology out of the U.S. This includes sending aircraft to Russian companies, as well as indicting a former Apple employee for stealing trade secrets for China. NTD's David Lamb reports. The Justice Department revealed five criminal cases Tuesday tracing the illegal flow of sensitive technology, including Apple's software code for self-driving cars and materials used for missiles to foreign adversaries like Russia, China, and Iran. Two of the five cases involve dismantling alleged procurement networks created to help the Russian military and intelligence services obtain sensitive technologies in violation of U.S. export control laws. In another case, a former software engineer from Apple was accused of stealing proprietary data before his last day at the company in 2018. Then, investigators searched Weibo Wang's home and found Apple's source code on his devices. He flew to China after. Unfortunately, the same evening as that search warrant was uh, served, um, at approximately 8.34 that evening, he was able to purchase a one-way ticket and fly out that same night at 11.55, as alleged in the indictment. The 35-year-old engineer Wang accepted a U.S.-based job with a Chinese company working to develop self-driving cars before resigning from Apple. Some of the alleged theft dates back several years, but officials are drawing attention now to highlight the work of a task force created this year to disrupt the transfer of goods to foreign countries. The suspect involved in the Apple data theft faces up to 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine or twice the amount of his gain for each count of theft. And additionally, two Russian nationals were arrested for scheming to send aircraft parts to Russian companies. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Tragic event there. Next for your sports news today, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a big change for a prominent NBA team. That's right, Steph. The Philadelphia 76ers are dismissing head coach Doc Rivers Following a Game 7 loss Sunday, the Sixers lost the winner-take-all contest to the Celtics by 24 points, marking the third straight season the team has been dismissed in the second round, all under Rivers' watch. Rivers was hired three years ago after a 70-year run with the Clippers. Previous to that, he led Boston to an NBA title in 2008 and a runner-up finish two years later. Now, despite the playoff loss, his teams have finished above 500 for 16 straight seasons, which is the fourth longest streak by a coach in NBA history. Philadelphia is now one of five teams who've parted ways with their head coach this offseason. 
And in soccer news in Brazil, the mausoleum for the late great Pele was open for fans to visit yesterday for the first time. The place is covered in artificial grass and his resting place is surrounded by images of fans in the stands and even endless audio sounds of them cheering as if he were still playing. Pele passed away last December of throat cancer at age 82. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, more NBA playoff action as the Nuggets and Lakers tip off Game 1 in Denver. Meanwhile, off the court, the league is holding their annual draft lottery to determine the first 14 picks of the draft. At stake is the opportunity to draft 19-year-old French sensation Victor Wembenyama, who at 7'3 is considered the top pick in the draft. And finally, for you baseball fans, busy night. All 30 teams are in action. And on the mound, three former Cy Young winners are getting a start, though not against each other. Cleveland's Shane Bieber faces the White Sox. The Dodgers' Clayton Kershaw goes up against the Twins. And the Mets' Justin Verlander takes on the Rays. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.